Achieving a gorgeous grin from home isn't a total mystery with Byteclear aligners. Just don't be surprised if all of your sleuthing friends start asking, what's your secret? Begin by ordering your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95. Byteclear aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces. Plus, they offer flexible financing, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot com. Start your confidence journey today with Byte. Welcome to Money for the Rest of Us. This is a personal finance show on money, how it works, how to invest it, and how to live without worrying about it. I'm your host, David Stein. Today is episode 365. It's titled, Why Some Asset Bubbles Don't Pop. LaPro and I have spent the last week in the East Bay area visiting our son. We have a friend who is a first-time home buyer here. He recently purchased a modest ranch house in a quiet neighborhood about 20 miles away from San Francisco. The home was built in 1950. Two bedrooms, one bath, 900 square feet. He paid over $600,000. $700 a square foot. Is that a bubble price? Not necessarily. Home prices in the East Bay area are up 11% in the past year. They're up 30% from the peak in 2006 and double from the bottom of 2012. Home prices fell 39% from 2006 to 2012. The East Bay area is incredibly beautiful. They're not making more of it. There are amazing vistas, great weather, wonderful shops and restaurants, super people. There's scarcity when it comes to the East Bay Area. San Francisco is also a vibrant city. It has some stresses right now. Homelessness, drugs, theft. I was at Walgreens, the drugstore on Market Street in San Francisco. I needed to buy a $3 box of dental floss. There have been so many thefts at Walgreens in San Francisco, they've closed 22 stores. This one is still open, but much of the merchandise is under lock and key. I needed to call customer service in order for them to unlock the box of dental floss so I could buy it. San Francisco has the highest per capita property crime of the top 20 cities in the U.S., according to the FBI. Yet, home prices there have increased 25% in the past year. There is still buying pressure from the marginal buyer that wants to live in San Francisco and the East Bay Area. Three years ago, in episode 226, we discussed asset bubbles. We focused on cannabis stocks. We looked at the work of Rob Arnott. He's the founder of Research Affiliates, an investment firm and a longtime academic. He says, for a bubble, we need a valuation model that justifies the current price based on implausible assumptions, that there's no way, little chance to make a positive return relative to bonds or cash using reasonable cash flow growth assumptions. We need implausible assumptions. An anti-bubble is the opposite. We need implausibly pessimistic assumptions in order to not make money in the asset class. That's the first requirement, implausible assumptions. The second requirement is the marginal buyer doesn't use valuation models. The marginal buyer, the individual or institution stepping in, willing to pay the current price 
and providing buying pressure to pay at a higher price. They don't use valuation models. They believe in some narrative, a story, a meme, expecting to resell the asset to someone in the future at a higher price. If we look at the prominent bubbles that I have invested through as an institutional investor, the internet stock bubble in the late 90s into the year 2000, the narrative there, new economy stocks, dot-coms, no more brick-and-mortar stores. Everything was going to be online. And that was a narrative that more and more people believed. Random people on the street were recommending their favorite dot-com stock. There was a palpable enthusiasm and a fear of missing out. The housing bubble of 2006, their narrative was home prices can't go down nationally. They'd never have. There could be general asset bubbles across many different securities, or there could be micro bubbles, just a single asset. In episode 206, we discussed cannabis stocks. That's a sector of the market. I mentioned that there was a sales rep at a store in New York City that I was visiting with that was buying cannabis stocks, really had bought into the story. I questioned him about his assumptions, the earnings, the price, the value. Hadn't even occurred to him. He just thought they would go up. But the assumptions built into those stocks were implausible. Three years later, if we look at one of the oldest cannabis ETFs, the Alternative Harvest ETF, ticker is MJ, its three-year annualized return is negative 21%. Its five-year annualized return is negative 9%. The expectations weren't met. The story didn't hold. Now, maybe they'll come back. I don't know. Arnott gives the example of a recent debate he had with Kathy Wood of ARK Invest at a Morningstar conference about Tesla. He asked her about her valuation model. What would it take to justify a target price of $3,000 for Tesla? She said Tesla needed to grow 89% a year for the next five years and that investors would pay the same multiple of earnings in five years as they do for the FANG stocks today. Kathy Wood thought that was reasonable. Arnott thought that was implausible. Because Amazon, one of the biggest growth stock success in a generation, only grew 14-fold in the last decade, whereas Tesla was expected to grow twice that amount in half the time. Bubbles are sustained by those marginal buyers. Someone willing to step in and buy from a willing seller. For every buyer, there's a seller. But sometimes the sellers want to get out way more than the buyers want to get in. Or the buyers want to get in more than the sellers want to exit, and they're willing to pay more. That provides some pricing pressure. We need the marginal buyers for a bubble to be sustainable. That are willing to pay more. But we also need something that's often overlooked. How will the buyers be paying for those assets? What is their source of funds? Will they be selling other assets that they no longer want to hold? Is it coming from debt? Are they borrowing money and funneling it into the asset? Is it coming from their salary, their ongoing income from their jobs? Or is it money coming from the government? If we look at the case of the housing bubbles back in 2007, that was funded by debt. 
In 2001, U.S. household debt as a percentage of disposable income, which is income after taxes, was 100%. By 2007, household debt as a percentage of disposable income had increased to 134%, an all-time high. Individuals were taking out two and three mortgages. They didn't have to verify their income. There was a huge demand to package those mortgages into collateralized debt obligations that were sold all around the world. That demand for those mortgages, that mortgage debt, and the lack of income verification led many, many people to get mortgages that should not have. And that provided buying pressure for home prices to increase. Now, U.S. household debt as a percentage of disposable income is down to 96%. It's way more difficult to get a mortgage. The requirements are more stringent. And yet now we also see home prices appreciating rapidly. Now what is that source of funds? It's the huge increase in money supply driven by very large federal budget deficits, greater than 15% of GDP, combined with quantitative easing by the Federal Reserve. The Fed is stepping in and buying those bonds. The Fed's balance sheet has increased by $4 trillion since the beginning of the pandemic. The money supply, M2, checking, savings accounts, money market funds, has increased $6 trillion. That's money that's flown into the pockets of U.S. households. Who have used those funds to buy houses? There was buying pressure. It's pushed up the price of houses. There was also buying pressure from corporations such as Zillow and others that were using automated offers, artificial intelligence to buy houses. In the case of Zillow, they just had to write down their inventory of homes by $569 million. They paid too much. A write down of about $30,000 per home. They're laying off 2,000 workers realizing that they didn't have the scale to compete, nor apparently the algorithm to compete in the way that they wanted because they paid too much for the homes. Now, there is a marginal buyer exiting that potentially could impact the price of homes. Let's take a look at the stock market. If we look at the valuation of U.S. stocks as measured by the S&P 500 index, it's cyclically adjusted price-to-earnings ratio which is the price divided by the earnings over the previous decade, is 38.8 times, the second highest in history. The highest was in 2000 in the internet bubble that I mentioned, where that PE got to 45. It's currently at a similar valuation as it was in 1929. The average is 17. We're at more than twice that amount today. Stock prices have also been driven by the jump in the money supply. But there's also some structural changes that appear to be more sustainable. The proliferation of indexing, passive investment, and more ETFs and funds. Most people, when they think about indexing the U.S. stock market, invest in an S&P 500 index fund or ETF. That is a size-weighted or a capitalization-weighted index. Capitalization is measured by the number of shares outstanding times the price. As more money flows into that index or index funds that track that index, the marginal dollar goes into the biggest companies, the Microsofts, the Amazons, 
that pushes up their price, their valuations. They become more expensive. According to data from Capital Economics, if we look at the gap, the difference in the price-to-earnings ratio of the most expensive 10% of companies and compare it to the least expensive 10% of companies in the U.S. stock market, the gap has never been wider. More and more money is going to those more expensive companies as part of the structure of indices. That same phenomena is there if we just look at the top 30%. That gap is at its second biggest with the more expensive companies selling for way more than the least expensive companies. Same phenomena exist if we look at price to book. Indexing is allowing some companies, some stocks to become more and more expensive as they get more of the flows. The same time, the stocks are trading more like a group. They're more correlated. They're going up and down together because investors aren't distinguishing between the companies. If we look at the correlation of one-day returns among the different stocks that comprise the indices, that correlation has been consistently, for most periods of time, above average from 2002 to today compared to the period from 1976 to 2002. Stocks are trading more as a group. Before we continue, let me pause and share some words from this week's sponsors. We have a brand new sponsor to our show. It's Yahoo Finance. Yahoo's been around for decades. My first email outside of work was a Yahoo email address. But the financial side, I've used on occasion primarily to get data for dividend histories for particular funds or ETFs. But I was pleasantly surprised to get back on Yahoo Finance to see how it's evolved over the years. Now it's really a financial dashboard where you can get an understanding of what's going on with the markets. There are relevant articles from Bloomberg, Reuters, the Associated Press, and the Yahoo Finance team. You can look at the economic events calendar and see which data series are being released that day and what the consensus is. You can see the pulse of the markets at any time by going to Yahoo Finance. In addition, you could see all of your investments in retirement accounts in one place. With Yahoo Finance, you get a consolidated view of multiple accounts. Yahoo Finance serves as a financial hub for your retirement accounts, but also comprehensive financial news and analysis. You need to check out Yahoo Finance, particularly if you haven't been there in a while. Check it out at yahoofinance.com. That's yahoofinance.com. If you've been using Mint to manage your finances, you know they shut down several months ago. Well, let me tell you about the budgeting solution, the financial tracking solution I've been using for the past number of months. It's Monarch Money. Monarch Money is the top-rated all-in-one personal finance app. It gives you a comprehensive view of all your accounts, investments, transactions, and more. You can create custom budgets like I've done. You can set goals, collaborate with your partner. And now you can get an extended 30-day free trial when you go to monarchmoney.com David. What I like about Monarch is the ability to customize what I want to see. I have custom budget categories, and then I can go on to the dashboard and see where I'm above trend on some of my spending. I especially like that Monarch will never sell your data to third parties or show you ads. After trying Monarch myself, I understand why it's the top-rated personal finance app. And right now, get an extended 30-day free trial when you go to monarchmoney.com slash David. That's M-O-N 
A-R-C-H-M-O-N-E-Y.com slash David for your extended 30-day free trial. The other thing that has changed, and this is from a fascinating paper by Xavier Gabay and Ralph Koijin. It's on what they call the inelastic market hypothesis. They point out that households own less individual stocks. They're pouring money into mutual funds and ETFs. And that the marginal seller meeting the demand from the marginal household buyer isn't hedge funds. That hedge funds only make up 5% of the equity market. Brokers make up less than a half a percent. Much of the assets are being held in funds and ETFs that have a fairly consistent allocation to stocks over time because they have a certain mandate. If you're an S&P 500 index fund, if you get a dollar of assets, of new assets flowing into that fund, you're going to buy more stocks and you're going to buy more of the bigger names because of the structure of the index. These co-authors estimate that a dollar flow into the market increases the price of stocks by $5. That stocks have very low elasticity on a macro basis. Demand for stocks doesn't fall as the price goes up. Households continue to save and invest for retirement. And there isn't selling pressure. They admit it's a hypothesis. But if we look at what's happening and how stocks have continued to appreciate, it's a fascinating theory. It suggests why QE, quantitative easing, can impact the prices of stocks like they did when we saw stocks sell off dramatically when the pandemic started. And then the very, very strong rebound as the Federal Reserve stepped in and the federal government stepped in with their stimulus. It suggests the huge impact of corporate buybacks that reduces the number of shares outstanding. The buying pressure from households as they buy into ETFs and funds, index funds, there are less shares, there are less stocks, and that pushes up the price also. It potentially could lead to more volatility. If households are the marginal buyer, sustaining the rally, if they decide to pull out some on the margin, then you could see these big drops like we saw with the pandemic. Now, one of the things that is often pointed out as a potential reduction in demand is the great wealth transfer. As baby boomers pass and their children and grandchildren inherit assets or gifts from boomers, Cerulli Associates estimates that 45 million U.S. households will collectively bequeath $68 trillion to their heirs, the largest redistribution of wealth in human history. If those heirs start selling stocks, that could put downward pressure. But here's the thing. This is from a study from the Federal Reserve. They find that when looking at these intergenerational transfers, the top 10% of households by wealth account for 72% of the transfers of wealth. The bottom 50% of households by wealth are only transferring, bequeathing 3% of the $68 trillion total. Most of that $68 trillion is going from wealthy households to wealthy children who won't necessarily be selling their stocks. So it doesn't appear that this great wealth transfer could upset this ongoing demand for stocks in a way that's relatively inelastic.
That doesn't mean we won't get volatility, but the narrative would need to change. We need three things for a bubble to be sustainable. A compelling narrative with more and more people believing it. The narrative of passive indexing. Stocks for the long run. We need to hold them because that's the highest expected return asset class with interest rates so low. There needs to be some scarcity. Scarcity of land. Scarcity of index funds. There's only one S&P 500. And the holdings in there are there based on size. But we also need a source of funds. That big source, as we've seen with quantitative easing, that steps in every time there's some type of economic challenge, increases the money supply that flows into assets, including stocks, real estate. I don't see that changing. Now, the Fed has started to taper, reduce the amount that they're willing to buy. We've been doing quantitative easing in some form for over a decade. Quantitative easing combined with federal budget deficits appears to be here to stay. What about cryptocurrency? Is that a bubble? It's hard to say because there is no cash flow driven valuation model. There are no assumptions we can use either plausible or implausible, to justify the price. For some cryptocurrencies, there's a scarcity story, such as Bitcoin. But for many, there's not. There's the metaverse story. Cryptocurrencies like the dollar or the euro. We don't typically think of there being a dollar bubble nor a euro bubble. For the same reason, we really can't have a cryptocurrency bubble. We can have a narrative enthusiasm for it can have scarcity, but it's very difficult to say cryptocurrency is priced too high. We can compare the price to other assets. That's about all we can do. The same way we can say the dollar is overvalued or undervalued based on some measure. That doesn't mean cryptocurrency can't plummet. But the bottom line is for bubbles to be sustainable, real estate, stocks, etc., we need that narrative. We need people believing the narrative. We need scarcity. But more importantly, we need an ongoing source of funds to provide buying pressure so that the marginal buyer is always willing to step in, has the funds to do so, to continue to push up the price. And if that marginal buyer backs out and that story changes, then that's when we really need to be wary. One reason I look at these metrics and the data on a monthly basis formally in the monthly investment conditions report that we do for Money for the Rest of Us Plus to understand the drivers of returns. And as I see it now, I don't see anything to suggest that the stock market is poised to enter a prolonged bear market. The underlying drivers are still there, even though stocks are expensive. Their narrative needs to change and the source of funds needs to change and what the marginal buyer is willing to do. We can monitor that marginal buyer by looking at survey data, investor sentiment, and we can also look at economic trends. Survey data is there to to suggest that earnings could be negatively impacted, and that could cause the marginal buyer to step out. But we'll see. That's what we're monitoring. Is the story changing? Is the source and volumes of funds sustaining the bubble changing? such that the amount of flows into the particular asset class will be reduced, impacting the price.
That then is episode 365. Thanks for listening. I'd like to help you become a better investor. Certainly the free podcast helps with that. But have you subscribed to my email newsletter? It's where I share an essay on money investing in the economy each week to that list of thousands of email subscribers. I put a great deal of thought and time into that newsletter, and I would love you to be able to read it and learn from it. You can sign up for the Insider's Guide newsletter at moneyfortherestofus.com. Another way I would love to help you become a better investor is by you becoming a member of Money for the Rest of Us Plus. This is the premier investment education platform that's been operating for almost seven years now. Plus membership gives members the tools and resources they need to manage their investment portfolios. Not only can you tap into my more than two decades of investment experience, look at my portfolio trades, but my research is backed by top-tier institutional research partners such as Ned Davis Research, Capital Economics, MSCI, Refinitiv Data Stream. I curate the most important content and lessons to help you make better portfolio decisions. You also access a community of over a thousand members to get their insights. Money for the Rest of Us Plus is a bargain compared to a college credit or subscribing to institutional research services that cost tens of thousands of dollars per year or even hiring a financial advisor. You can learn more at moneyfortherestofus.com. Everything I've shared with you in this episode has been for general education. I've not considered your specific risk situation. I've not provided investment advice. This is simply general education on money, investing, and the economy. Have a great week.